If you would, join with me in turning to Daniel chapter 7. If you need a copy of Scripture, a physical copy, then we've got one, not just a digital copy. You can use those too. But but if you want a physical copy, we've got them in the the seat backs. Uh, I see that we've got several on the front row. Uh, I knew something was different today because of that. Uh, Normally, not many people pack out the front row. But hey, we had a baptism, and that's worth packing out the place for. So, notice here as we turn to Daniel 7... And I've been prepping you for this. I, uh, I spoke with you last week, actually, concerning sort of the mid-season finale of the six episodes we find in the six chapters of Daniel 1 through 6. Well, there's still six remaining. Interestingly, we're six weeks out from Pentecost. Again, 50, 50 days until the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so we want to land here in the last six chapters of Daniel. And yet, I will warn you, these last six chapters of Daniel are a different beast of their own, if you will. Pun intended. What we want to do is begin reading here just simply the first few verses and then the last few verses, seeing as as which we cannot read the entire chapter for time's sake. Notice this in Daniel chapter 7, as he is shifting gears... We will see that shift come about in this apocalyptic vision. In the first year of Belshazzar, we've heard of him before, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And for time's sake, let's drop to the end of the chapter. Go down to 26. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Now here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Your word is powerful. Make it powerful unto salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Standing at the beach a few weeks back, you're always standing at the edge of something great. It's hitting your feet, and yet it seems to go as far as the eye can see. Sort of sounds like that everlasting kingdom. It's bigger than you. It's colossal. And reading Daniel is like that, quite frankly. Reading any bit of apocalyptic literature in the New Testament, Revelation, Apocalypse, and in Daniel here, which is the Revelation of the Old Testament, we get this sense that this thing is a lot bigger than we thought it was. That God is concerned with more than what we can see. More than just where we're standing. There's a lot to take in. And although we can't survey the whole ocean of Daniel, or of Revelations, 
we can, so to speak, know what we can know and see what we can see from a beach perspective. And God help us to see what is here. For it is for us. It's for the refreshing of our souls, of my soul. It's therapeutic for our fears. This is the purpose of prophecy. Daniel is repositioning us. Just like when your GPS is repositioning to get the accurate location. He's pulling us back and looking at the overall pictures. We've had six episodes where we've had a slither of history each time in the life of Daniel. We saw him go, remember, from a boy to an old man. Changing regimes and yet remaining in power and being saved by the power of God and having laid upon him the favor of God. And so he's shared with us how God has displayed his providence and it's been on display for the nations. But now, the last six chapters, as he shifts gears, changes the genre even, the literary style. He has something else to say, and he's going to say it to the remnant, the elect, the people who are in exile. And so, we come to something different. This is, if you will, the second half of the season. So this is the uh, premiere today, is the premiere to the second half of Daniel's, Daniel's season. Some of you will get that if you watch Netflix at all, or if you binge watch Netflix. And I would suggest to you binging Daniel. Uh, Just go ahead and read the last six chapters. Binge on it daily. Let it live with you this week as we approach these final apocalyptic chapters. But I will say they are very different. It's the difference in looking at a postcard of the ocean and actually being in the ocean. And these apocalyptic chapters drop us right into the end time events. And it's a little crazy, quite frankly. The dating of the vision that he gives us right up in front, it actually begins, like the other ones did, with sort of a historical location being Belshazzar. And so, it's one of these things, it's six years after Nebuchadnezzar's been, been dead. We actually know the exact dating of this because of the way, way he lays it out. Historically speaking, we can find that. We know who these guys are. We know who Belshazzar is. We know who Nebuchadnezzar is. We know who the Babylonians are, historically speaking. We also know, Revelation speaking, who they are. Because God knows who they are. And he was the one who's moving the pieces. And so there's a regime change. And anytime there's a regime change, that's a little bit of a tough transition. I mean, you think that a presidential transition is tough? You ain't seen nothing until you've seen how they do it in the ancient world. They pretty much go about killing everybody. Anybody that's connected to that king has to die because anybody that continues to live, well, they still might have an etch for the throne. They can't leave a bloodline at all. So when we talk about a regime change, it gets nasty in the ancient world quick. And this was a regime change. Now Belshazzar is in trouble. Who in the world is that? And does he even like Daniel? I mean, we've already seen how in the past six episodes, Daniel's kind of built a relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, but not Belshazzar now. What is he going to do? Are we going to be shaken up? Are we going to 
lose our place? Is He going to eradicate us? You see, when the foundations shake, the children of God's foundation doesn't have to shake is what Daniel says. When the world is quaking with wars and rumors of war, we don't have to quake and our knees knock. Someone beyond political leaders is in control. And so we stand firm. He gives us a sign as he does Daniel. And this is very reminiscent, quite frankly, of Isaiah. Remember? There's regime change. Move from one king to... Remember how he starts his vision in chapter 6? In the year that King Uzziah died... In other words, oh boy, who are we going to get next? What's going to happen? Not the next four years, but this guy's entire lifetime. And it says that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe, the very end of his robe that drug across the ground, was so big it filled the entire temple. Quite a vision. But why change the genre? I mean, if you were watching a show and the mid-season finale, you come back in for the premiere the next time, and they've changed the entire genre. The literary style of the show. You'd be like, what's going on? Why did they do that? I enjoyed the last six episodes. Why change things? (laughs) He has a purpose for this. Why haul off and change up the flow, Daniel? Well, he's got something more to say, but it's different than what he was saying in the first six chapters. Same basic premise, and that is, despite current circumstances, God is in control. But he's not just in control, Daniel, of your little life of about 90 years, but instead, he's in control of kingdoms behind you and behind them and behind them all the way to the end. Well, apocalyptic genre, this style, is, as you may know if you've played video games or if you watch apocalyptic type television shows, which there's several, you'll know it's filled with vivid images that are quite graphic. Lots of big things happening. After all, it's the end of the world. Wouldn't you figure it would go out, not just with a whimper, but with an explosion? This is the way it seems to happen. Everybody fighting for their own. This is a fantastic story, but more than that, it's meaning for us today. This has import for us this morning, for me. You see, we're not home yet. And so the plot goes on with this tension that even though he hasn't fully rescued us, he can still rescue us in here. That even though those guys are in prison over there, they can be free. More free than some of us that are outside of prison and yet in a prison of sin and selfishness. They're living in a foreign land here, oppressed by others. There's a few keys that you want to remember as you sort of survey these six chapters in Daniel, and if you are interested at all in reading Revelation, which most people are in some form. Maybe you're not at all. But if you are, then there's three things that I want to point you to apocalyptically, if you're reading that, just like you wouldn't want to read 
the Psalms like you read narrative, right? When God says, I want to put you under my wing, you wouldn't then say, oh, well, he's just a divine chicken. No, you read poetry different than narrative, different than law, different than apocalyptic. You don't read the newspaper the same way you read a comic book. So, we must read this carefully and with a few key things in mind, and that is apocalyptic literature is given in the Bible for encouragement. This is where people swerve off the track. They go to Revelations because they want to see people die. Oh, yeah, I love this stuff. There's the seal that's broken, and then he's cutting people off, blood up to a horse's bridle. Right on, man! Like watching an action movie. But it's actually meant for encouragement. As a kid, I was freaked out by the Left Behind series. Truly. Out of my mind. And yet, apocalyptic stuff is meant to be encouraging to our faith, not discouraging. So if we're being discouraged by the end time events, then we're not reading it properly. Or, we're not in the right position. We're on the wrong side. That kind of matters, doesn't it? The other thing is, it's motivation to obedience. In other words, the reason God lets these prophets see into the future is not to say, oh wow, that's awesome, right on Isaiah, right on Ezekiel, right on Jeremiah, Daniel. But instead, to say, repent. You're where you are because you disobeyed God. It wasn't just a political change, it was my change. It's not enough just to say, I love Jesus. You have to live it out. Thirdly, apocalyptic stuff wants to be interpreted as a sign. Not literally. And again, this is where people get things messed up in Revelation or in Daniel. Is is they want to do a one for one. We're so analytical, we're so logical that we've lost imagination. Daniel's audience had not. They were living in a mythical time. They were living in a time where imagination ran wild. We, unfortunately, can't even read poetry anymore. I don't know any students of mine that read poetry. I don't know any adults of mine that read poetry regularly and can understand it. Most people throw it away because, ah, what is all that junk that that guy's saying? And yet, poets, if you know anything about history, are the ones that changed culture and the world, not the ones who are writing law. I think God wants us to see something here, even in a difficult genre of apocalyptic stuff. He gives us these signs, but they're not signs that we would think. I mean, you would think, just like we were reading today, It'd be the sign of touch here or touch there. No, Jesus says, look, blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. It's not the norm to see. It's the norm to trust others, eyewitnesses, like the apostles, who have seen and have passed down the faith. 
and we pass down that same faith and believe. I mean, the sign of a virgin in the Old Testament, how does that help King Ahaz? God doesn't make us believe with his signs. He gives us an opportunity to believe because of his signs. You witnessed one of the signs today, did you not? Of baptism. This is God's sign. And we have an opportunity to believe that she entered the kingdom of God today. I dare you to believe that. I dare you to come under the grace of that and to remember your baptism. You see, these mythical images that are floating around in Daniel 7 of these beasts and this horns and little horn yelling and all this kind of stuff that's going on in Daniel 7 and the rest of the chapters, this would have not really freaked out anybody in the ancient world. After all, if you read mythology for five minutes, you're going to have monsters everywhere and aspects of nature as monsters. So this would have been quite familiar to his hearers, even if it wasn't for us, because we've drained nature of divinity. We can't even see God any longer, I'm convinced, in nature in our own cultural context here. It's just a machine now, which is unfortunate. But see, the SEA, monsters, horns, cosmic war, all this is part of mythology. And now we find it in the Bible. What are we to do with that? Some of the stuff is pretty easy to understand, like the number seven. Say, why is that the number of perfection? Well, it's a whole week. That's why. It's a full week. So it's a perfect number. Three and a half is not. Three and a half comes up later. The sea is pretty easy to understand, too. It's tumultuous, unpredictable dangerous. So as the four winds begin to blow here, out of the sea, which represents chaos, comes these kingdoms of man. Some of the images are a little more bizarre to us, a little more strange to us. Wouldn't you agree? But that doesn't mean they were to his hearers or to Daniel himself, although he doesn't understand, does he? So he would even tell us, I don't understand. I mean, in the story of today, he actually, somebody's standing around watching all the events that he's seeing, and he goes, hey man, what's, what's going on here? And the guy begins to explain it to him, this angel. But you know, we use animals as symbols too, don't we? Sure we do. The British lion, the Russian bear, the American eagle. These are symbols. Much less the Democratic donkey, the Republican elephant. Or dare we say the Alabama elephant and the Auburn tiger. These are totems, spiritual animals that represent something greater. And so as common as an elephant and a donkey would be in a political cartoon would have been this for Daniel's hearers. So what do we have here? Well, we've got six kingdoms overall in this chapter. Four kingdoms of man, one satanic kingdom, and one kingdom of Christ, kingdom of God. 
It's really reminiscent, these four kingdoms, of Daniel 2, where he sees this statue, you remember? With the head of gold representing Babylon, with these silver arms and chest, which represent Persia, and this bronze belly and thighs, which represented Greece, which wasn't even around then. They were just like Decatur would be on the world scene. They were nobodies. Nothing against Decatur. It's just not a powerful city that's known for its strength militarily. And then these iron legs of both iron and clay feet, which represented Rome. Four kingdoms, four parts of this statue. Now, four beasts that also represent four kingdoms. This is not just a coincidence. This is God trying to tell Daniel something. But what is he trying to say? He's trying to say this. Mankind views the kingdoms of God as a great statue to be remembered, honored, revered. But God doesn't see it like that. God sees the kingdoms of men not as awesome political machines, genius, structural power, but instead as ravenous, rabid beasts, terrible, violent, and evil. Evil because they emerge out of chaos, yet they represent natural things, except for that fourth beast. You remember the lion with the eagle's wings, which you could safely say was a common Babylonian sphinx. The bear with ribs in his mouth, one side higher than the other, easily the Medes and the Persian alliance, where the Medes got the shorter end of the stick, and the Persians take over. And then the leopard with wings coming out of the sea with four heads, quick and swift like the Greeks, and you'll remember Alexander the Great, strikes across the world faster than any other and conquers it. And then the fourth beast that Daniel sees in these visions, he doesn't even have a natural component to relate it to. He just simply says it's dreadful and it's terrible. Its teeth cannot be broken because they are iron teeth. This represents Rome. But then, on this terrible beast, there's ten horns. And then there's one horn that wars against some of the others and then starts speaking loudly. This is the Antichrist, the son of perdition, the son of hell itself. This is the counterfeit Christ. Interestingly, we're told he's a man. He will be on the earth and he will lead many astray and he will make war against the saints and prevail for a time. Until the Ancient of Days comes. Then you have the Kingdom of Christ. Because when the Ancient of Days comes, the show's over. It's very reminiscent of Psalm 2, where it's a royal psalm, and essentially all everybody is warring against the Ancient One, the Most Holy One, God, and 
He sits in the heavens and laughs. Now, it's not a jolly laugh. It's rather ridicule, mockery. And then, all of a sudden, the Son of Man comes riding on clouds of glory and He comes before the throne. And now court is in session, we're told, and the books are opened. And Daniel now asks somebody standing around, <laughs> I'd be asking somebody too, hey, what's going on? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, he says, what's going on? And this angel begins to describe what's going on. The saints are being attacked by the Antichrist Again, until the Ancient of Days shows up. And then, lastly, Daniel gives us a report at the very end that we read. And he says, whew, that was terrible. That was awful. My color has changed. And I get much sleep over that one. It physically affected him. So what do we make of all this? So what, what does all this mean? There's all this stuff swirling around. Sounds like mumbo jumbo, but is it? No, there's a clear message here, and that is the nature of human kingdoms. And the nature of human kingdoms is, is, is this. They're violent. They're evil. And they're power-driven. And when you contrast the kingdom of God with any kingdom of man, it shows that the kingdom of man is after defiance of authority and sets itself up as the ultimate authority. That they are more interested in the oppression of people and the will to power than the power of God. That they are concerned with being monstrous beasts. Making up their own system of right and wrong. Voting on it. Instituting it as their own power. And many times in these kingdoms, the majority rules and the minority drools. And science today can be one of these things, even in our own culture, that's done now by consensus. Let's vote on that. Let's put the pressure on those. These kingdoms come from chaos and they create chaos They're bent on destruction and the will to power. As Lord Acton said many years ago, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We talk about Hitler and we talk about Mao. Millions and millions murdered. But what about other kingdoms that promote nominalism, individualism, subjectivism, secularism, Atheism, agnosticism, all the isms. Which is worse, friends, to kill the body or to kill the soul? You say, well, I'm glad I'm in America. We're on the right side after all, the good side. Don't think that the line of evil doesn't run right through our own kingdom and borders. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks they stand take heed lest they fall. Frederick Nietzsche says this, Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become 
a monster. And if you gaze long enough into an abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you. The nature of human kingdoms is evil. But God is not threatened by human kingdoms. <laughs> Notice the titles given in this, uh, this. This is fantastic. Notice the titles that are given here in this chapter. I know we didn't read it all, but I'm about to share them with you. The Ancient of Days. Don't you love that? It's only used three times in the entire Bible, and all three times is right here in Daniel chapter 7. And with Christian vision, we know this is the throne of God the Father Almighty that you just confessed in the Apostles' Creed. And then we have Jesus riding on the clouds, maybe the Spirit, and comes before the throne in submission. He sees the whole sweep of history because He is before history and He will be at the end of history. You see, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the A and the Z. It's funny because when the Ancient of Days shows up, everything just ends. He doesn't even pull out a sword. He doesn't put on Kevlar. He doesn't put on a helmet. He just simply shows up and it's all over just because he walks in. <laughs> There's no voting. There's no consensus. Just everybody drops their weapons. Just because of his presence. Then thrones are placed in place and he takes a seat and his clothing is described white as snow. His hair is described pure as wool. Kind of reminds you of the transfiguration, doesn't it? And then his throne... Oh yeah, his throne, sure it has a stream of fire <laughs> flowing out like lava, as my kids would say. And he has wheels on his throne, and they're also fiery wheels. This is apocalyptic, remember? Kind of reminds me actually of, um, what's his name, King Koopa's Castle? dun 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 remember that? Nobody? Okay, well, dun 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 you know, all that lava around him. All right, so, and, uh, and then he says this, and thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Sounds like one of my kids, actually, trying to describe time. <laughs> I mean, it's Ty's birthday day. He's, he's turning four today. And, uh, and thank the Lord, because three's been pretty tough. Um, <clears throat> whoever came up with the terrible two, uh, twos felt really stupid when their kid turned three, according to Jim Gaffigan. Ty in the car will often say this, Daddy, how many more minutes <clears throat> until we get there? I'll tell him, buddy, it's just a little bit longer. And he'll respond something like this. That sounds like a million thousand million minutes. And then he commences to whine. Well, in the Semitic world, 10,000 was the largest number they had. So what does he do here? He multiplies 10,000 by 10,000, and said there are myriads of myriads of people when the Ancient of Days shows up who are setting up his throne, and then he sits down in judgment, and the books are opened. And God is the judge of all things because he's recorded all things in that book. Who then can stand because of what he's recorded? 
No one can stand but the Son of Man. And he comes and stands before the throne and submits to the Most High, to the Ancient of Days, the Lamb. That's good news for us. The next title, the Most High. The Most High. (laughs) Ancient Days, now the Most High. Not even in the same league, you could say. I mean, imagine a T-baller against a Major League Baseball player. That's what we're talking about here. When he shows up, the game is over. There is no competition. He's the most high. And Nebuchadnezzar even adds, he's the living God. Which means my, my gods are dead. I made them with my own hands. But not this God. He's alive. He's living. And he's the most high. It's fascinating. In the Gospels, I love this. The man that was possessed by a legion of demons, you remember this? He's living in tombs, he's living in caves. Jesus gets off the boat, and here's what happens. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up, bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do you have with each other, Jesus, the most, uh, sorry, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. In other words, the demons knew who this was. They come running up, that's in this man, bow down before him, simply because he shows up and says, What in the world are you doing here? We're supposed to be able to run free, man. And then they implore God not to torment them. You see, when God shows up, there is no fight. Fight's over. It never was a fight for God. He's the most high. The fight happens down here. The fight is in the spiritual world. But not God. He's the most high. (laughs) And so Jesus shows us this in the demons. In the Gospels. And then you get this beautiful one, Son of Man. The Son of Man riding on clouds of glory. Do you know that the clouds for the Babylonians was Baal, Baal? He was the cloud goddess. God, not goddess. He was, he was male. He was the cloud. Here's Jesus, who we know as Jesus, riding on Baal. That would have been highly offensive to them, by the way. Interestingly, in Mark 13, Jesus quotes Daniel 7. (laughs) Listen to what he says. He goes, Then if anyone tells you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders and so deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out. I have warned you about this ahead of time. But in those days, Jesus says... After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Did you catch that? 
the four winds that were blowing a little moment ago to conjure up these beasts are now the wind of the Spirit that brings together, that reverses the process, that kills the beast and puts the elect in their place of winning. Whew! When I saw four winds there, I was just like, you got to be kidding me. That'll preach. Son of Man is used by, uh, for Jesus, 88 times in the New Testament. 88 times. That's how he likes to refer to himself as Son of Man. Not Son of God, but Son of Man. Why? Because he was reading Daniel. And he said, that's me. That meets the Ancient of Days, that's me. That receives all the kingdoms, that's me. That defeats everyone and gains a name that is above all names, that's me, guys. I'm the Son of Man. Because He's the Son of God. <laughs> Whew. The last thing we learn from this apocalyptic story here is that redemption for humans will be through a human. This is only uh, accomplished by the Son of Man's submission to the Father, the Ancient of Days. Isn't this what Jesus came proclaiming anyway? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. It was near because the King was near. C.S. Lewis is brilliant on this point. He says, enemy-occupied territory... That is what this world is. And Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say, landed in disguise. And is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. That's his first advent. But there's going to be a second advent where he's not in disguise. Where he takes off that clothing he had at first. And it's glorified clothing that cannot be contained and the show's over the last Adam the promise keeper to Abraham the new Moses and the son of David Christ Christ the righteousness of God Christ the lamb of God Christ the son of God the son of man this is the son of man we talk about so what well If God is in control of all of that, the nations, the kingdoms of this world, all of human history, and all the events of everything, don't you think He's in control of your first world problems? Don't you think He's in control in a way that we can remain faithful even if He doesn't answer our prayers? even if He doesn't deliver us from all suffering, because why would He when He told us we would suffer? Understand what you've signed up for. We will suffer. We will die. But we can do it faithfully all the way to the end. No matter whose regime is in charge, no matter what political beasts are around us barking at our door when the Ancient of Days comes it won't be barking any longer 
Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Genesis 18.4. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Jeremiah 32. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Matthew 19. Shouldn't this impact the way we pray, the way we love, the way we forgive, share, give, treat the next person we meet, our neighbor today, the parents at the ball field? It changes everything. It is meant to be a sign that we can trust God. That no matter the current circumstances, God is in control. And He can be in control of your life. You can put your faith in Him, and you should. One day, the curtain will close on your life, on my life. And another will open that reveals our life. And the Ancient of Days will be there, the Most High. And the books will be opened. But so will Jesus. He'll be there. He'll be there. Thanks be to God. And I'll close with this story and we're done. Dr. Kinlaw, Dennis Kinlaw, died the other week and was laid to rest. If you don't know that name, that's all right. But he's impacted my life deeply. He used to love to talk about Henry Clay Morrison, who was an early founder of Methodism. Maybe you've heard that name, maybe you haven't. But Morrison told how he had broken the law when he was a youth. How he ended up in court sitting next to a burly, blue, uniformed police officer who held him in custody. The judge on the bench called Morrison's case, and the judge then turned to the prosecuting attorney and said, Does this guy have an offender, a, def- a defender? The prosecuting attorney said, No, Your Honor, he doesn't have a lawyer to defend him. The judge said, He must have a defense. He looked down at a group of young lawyers in the courtroom, pointed to one and called him by name and then said, you be his defender. So I sat there in the dock next to the uniformed policeman, Morrison said. That young attorney walked over and sat down next to me and he asked me, are you guilty? Did you really do what they said you did? Oh, I told him, I did a lot more than they arrested me for. The young lawyer said, well then, the best thing you can do is throw yourself on the mercy of the court. Morrison said, there was something so winsome about the young lawyer that when he said you had better throw yourself on the mercy of the court, I felt confident in him. I thought that if he was going to do the throwing, I was willing for him to throw me anywhere. He was my only hope. So the attorney said to the judge, your honor, my client pleads guilty. Then something extraordinary happened. The attorney continued by saying, Father, if you will just turn this young man over to me and let me take care of him, I'll see that he never appears in your court again. Henry Clay Morrison said, I heard that word father and thought, can it be? I looked at the judge and knew it was true. My defense lawyer was the judge's son, so I knew everything was going to be all right. You know, this didn't happen in the county court. 
It was in a little Methodist church. The uniformed officer was the Holy Ghost who held me under conviction. And the young lawyer was the eternal Son of God, Son of Man. Come before him today. Cry out to him. Lay your life on him. Throw yourself on the mercy of his court. For he cares for you. Amen.